Hey there, welcome to Takeaway with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nations Restaurant News. I am Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief here at NRN, and this is the show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision makers. This week, I'm talking with Yaron Goldman. He is the CEO of Rib and Chop House, a comfort food forward casual dining concept based in Bozeman, Montana, that is part of the Finally Restaurant Group, and it has 13 locations across the Mountain West. Yaron joined the podcast to talk about how they've streamlined the concept to prepare for their just-launched franchise program, what he thinks about the impending recession and its impact on high-end concepts like his, and how loyalty has become more and more about providing access and exclusivity. In this episode, you will learn more about how you can save on costs without sacrificing quality, why smaller markets can carry bigger potential, and why paying your guests to be loyalty members is an investment that can pay massive dividends. Jumping now into my interview with Rib and Chop House CEO, Yaron Goldman. Also, don't forget to stick around after the interview as I will share my six takeaways from this discussion, actionable insights that you can take with you on the go. All right, Yaron Goldman, the CEO of the Finally Restaurant Group and the Rib and Chop House. Uh, Yaron, thanks for joining me today. Um, to start, for anybody who's listening, not familiar with the Finally Restaurant Group and this concept in particular, the Rib and Chop House, give me the quick synopsis of what this group is all about. Yeah, uh, for sure. Thanks for having me on, Sam. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, so Finally Restaurant Group was founded in 2000 in Bozeman, Montana. And it started with um, the Ribbon Chop House brand, which is a higher end steak restaurant um, that the first location was in Livingston, Montana. And over 20 years, it's grown to 13 locations with a couple licensees. And we're building a few more locations next year. And we just started a franchise program as well. Um, But the basis for the brand and the business is really, it is a place where everyone's welcome. We like to say we're very approachable. If you come into a ribbon chop house and your significant other and yourself want to celebrate anniversary or a birthday and get dressed up and have a big night, you can feel totally welcome as well as someone coming in with some kids um, after a ball game or want to hang out with their friends and watch, um, watch some sports at the bar and have a great cold beer. It's great for all of that. And we have threaded the needle with this brand to be able to make all of those groups of people feel very welcome all at the same time. It's, it's very unique in the industry. I don't, I I haven't seen a lot of brands that can thread that needle. um, And I feel like ribbon chop house does a great job with that. Um, Finally restaurant group also has three other brands. Excuse me. One is a uh, Mexican restaurant um, in Billings, Montana called Rio Sabinas. Um, It was a um, ideation came from the founder of Burke, Moran, where he wanted to do some things that um, from his father's ideas of Mexican restaurants back in Louisiana, um, where he had a little bit of Cajun flair um, in the uh, in the Mexican space. And we have one location there. And we also have a brewery that's a sister company of ours based in Wyoming that actually uh, supplies us with a microbrew um, called Accomplice that we serve in our Wyoming and Montana locations that we only serve at our location. So it's a nice point of differentiation for people who are into microbrews and um, the accomplice breweries actually won a ton of uh, uh, American festival, great uh, beer festival awards. And uh, it's a very, very um, high quality brand. And then our fourth brand is called TJ ribs, which actually was started in the late eighties by uh, Burke's father. And then Burke purchased from his father in the late two thousands. And it's a uh, sports bar slash barbecue place that has three locations in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Um, all really high volume. Food is amazing and just been a staple in uh, Louisiana for a very long time and actually hosts uh, the uh, LSU coaches show there, too. So um, it's very popular with LSU. and We do a lot of catering and sponsorship with uh, LSU football, which is very hot right now. 
Yeah, sure. Well, it's the first time that I've ever heard of a connection for a restaurant company between Louisiana and Montana. I never would really would have put those two together. Um, it, but, you it, know, it is, sure. It is, it is unique, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it sounds like it works. Um, so I will confess, I've, I've never been to Bozeman. I've never been to Montana, unfortunately. I got to change this soon. I got to get up there. But tell me how the Bozeman community is reflected in Ribbon Chop House in particular. How, how does this concept really come out of Montana? How is that reflected in the brand? Well, I mean, just from the way we have, we call we have what we call Rocky Mountain hospitality, right? So uh, the Morans are from Louisiana originally. So there's um, always some kind of Louisiana uh, flavor or flair to the menu. But the biggest part is, is, you know, at the end of the day, we are meat and potatoes, big steaks, good value, high quality, and you can get a you know a beer, a steak, a potato, and uh, and leave for under thirty dollars uh, if you want to, and feel really good about it. And it's really high quality, and that's been one of uh, the reasons for the for the success is we've only charged what we've had to charge, and it you know there was no evaluation of markets to say, hey, we could probably get another 20 or 30% margin here. We wanted to be uh, charge what we had to do to, to, to make the bills and, and, and make it a profitable restaurant, but also be the community's restaurant. And part of being the community's restaurant is really making it a menu that's, like I said before, that's approachable and affordable and something that you can bring your whole family to and, uh, and feel good the next day, you know? And tell me about some of the evolution of the brand from the past couple of years, because with COVID, with the you know explosion in off-premises channels, was that something that Ribbon Chop House, is that something you guys have pursued with this brand too? Yeah. So when I got here in the middle of COVID, so I took over as the CEO in September of 2020, and it was kind of in the middle of the storm, right? So uh, the restaurants were at half capacity, um, we weren't really set up for takeout and to go. We were doing it on an ad hoc basis. And we, when I got here, we started really thinking about strategically, how do we structure the actual locations and what do we do for to-goes and takeouts and how do we do partnerships with third-party delivery in a way that we can still serve our food in an affordable way um, but and profitable for us as well. And we, we were able to begin that process in late 2020 because we never um, were part of third uh, third-party delivery before uh, COVID. We just didn't think mm-hmm. it made sense. And then we were able to get about 7% of our total sales on third-party delivery within 90 days of of working with them and integrating um, with DoorDash and uh, in our markets. We only just decided to adjust DoorDash because they integrated with our POS. Eventually, we may do other ones. Um, but we also want to kind of keep it simple because the in-dine dining experience for our guests is so important. We want to make sure we really focus on that. Um, so we were able to do some of those things with COVID. We also, with labor, before COVID, you know, our average uh, person in our kitchen, you know, makes 13 to $14 an hour. You know, with by beginning at 21, we had, you know, our average uh, kitchen employees making over 18. Um, and some, some markets, you know, mid-20s. And this is for hourly employees um, mm-hmm. that we just were not prepared from a, um, from a, unit economic standpoint to deal with. So we changed the model. Um, I worked on getting um, more streamlined product in all really high quality. But uh, we before I got here, we cut all our meat, all our steaks by hand. We take a lot of pride in that. But it the, the numbers don't make sense when the price of beef is double and the price of labor right. is double. And if you make a mistake, on uh, you make a mistake with some with stakes, you're going to either upset your customer or totally mess up your cost of goods. So we were able to change some of those things and uh, work with our suppliers to have them cut to our specs and delivered to us pre-cut, still high quality, still fresh, nothing frozen, and um, and kind of manage the labor and the food costs like that. And we've done that on a several of our prep and kitchen items um, to allow us to manage our labor and manage our P&L and actually lower food costs in this current environment, which has just been tremendous. Um, because before COVID, it all kind of just worked out because, you know, sales cures all and everyone's like, oh, it's yeah. fine. And when I got here, plus COVID, I we, I took a different look, look at it in a different approach. And COVID kind of forced everyone to face the reality. Doing the way you've always done it just doesn't work anymore. 
um, COVID changed the game for everybody, obviously. Yeah. Going back to your, you know, going to your suppliers and having them do some of that prep for you. Um, I imagine that if your customers were pretty cued into that, that might make them a little upset. But at the same time, it sounds like you're doing this. So you're not passing the buck onto them and increasing the prices a lot. So I'm just curious, you know, for for having sort of a premium message to your customers, how do you continue to really offer that premium experience, but then find these opportunities to save on cost? I guess, how do you balance those things without ruining some of that brand promise that you you are extending to your guests? I know, absolutely. Um, I, I would say, I'll give you some examples. Like when we were looking for ways to uh, manage costs, our, some suppliers came to us and said, hey, we can offer you a frozen steak which we said, we just won't do. We're just not mm-hmm. going to do a frozen steak. But instead we said, we want to do our same product, but cut it for us to precisely the exact spec we need. And actually it's an improvement in quality because before, if you ordered a 15 ounce ribeye, you may get 14 ounces, you may get 16 ounces. You have too much marbling, maybe not enough, but when it's done like this, it's perfect every time, but it's the exact same product where mm-hmm. we take that labor out and now we've repurposed it to make uh other things that we make from scratch that we get a ton of credit for. Um, Mm. I mean, when we made the change for the steaks, we had literally zero comments or complaints. Our our, um, guest satisfaction stores actually went up because we were more consistent. And people do like consistency, right? They don't want to go in and order order a 10-ounce steak and get an 8-ounce, or they get a 12-ounce one time, and they think, wow, 12, 10 ounces is a lot, but it's really not because they gave them 12-ounce steak. And the next time Mm -hmm. they get 8 and they think they're getting – short changed or we're lowering the um, portions um, because we were very adamant. We will not lower our portions. We're known for a place when you leave your full, you feel really it's most people have to go boxes, right? So we don't want to, we don't want to change that, but you know, making certain dressings from scratch um, and making sure we get credit for that. And then other things that we are making from scratch, we weren't getting any credit for and then working with suppliers and again, using our recipes and having them make it for us. Um, mm. Everything from our gumbo. Our gumbo is uh, what, some, one of the things we're known for. Um, and we were able to get our recipe to suppliers and we go through so much of it and be able to ship to the stores. And that to us was a big win. And our guests actually thought it's a better quality than what we were doing. And again, mm. repurposing that labor. And now we're able to do more specials. Um, we're adding, uh, actually this week, we're rolling out our most updated menu with new menu items, new salads, new side items, all made from scratch. So as long mm. as we balance that, then it's fine. But the other part is making sure you don't just go, everything comes in a box, you heat it and serve it. You can't at this level um, and for this price point. Um, that's sure. really important to us that we that we balance both. And, uh, and one of the things I also implemented when I got here is we do focus groups. We bring in uh, our loyalty and royalty members in for tastings and we get their feedback and we test the test, test everything we do um, before we just roll it out. Um, because before I got here, someone would have an idea in a conference room and the next week it'd be on every menu. And mm. we had no idea what, <laughs> what, what the consequences would be of that. And you, as you know, Sam, you can't just do those things. You have to really be thoughtful about adding, sure. subtracting anything to the menu or changing any, um, recipes because there's there's so many different things, unintended consequences that you're just not sure, and that's why you got to test. I'm curious, what do you think are the priorities from the customer? Speaking of all this, because of course, quality and food drives the restaurant industry, right? By and large, people go to restaurants because of a craving. But I'm curious what you think their priorities are now, because you know all of this talking about you know streamlining some of the operations. It feels to me like customers don't need to hear the words hand carved anymore, right? Because on one hand, yes, they want quality, but on the other hand, they want lower price. They want convenience. They want also an experience. And I'm sure Ribbon Chop House experience is key to what you guys are doing too. From your perspective, and as you do focus groups, what are you hearing from customers that those priorities are that they want from Ribbon Chop House? I'd say several things. Number one, in each each year since I've been here, it's been different. Right in in twenty uh, end of twenty and twenty one, it was as simple as can we get a table and will right. someone serve us and will you bring us food? <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> really low with the bar. bar <laughs> well, the bar was can you can you be open for the days that yeah. we used to be open? I mean, um, I don't want to say other restaurant names because it may sound 
um, inappropriate, but I just, a lot of our competitors were closed three days a week or closed for lunch seven days a week or all the stories you've heard everywhere. And we were blessed not to have to close any of our restaurants or any, anything having to do with, uh, with uh, staffing. And the way we, we did that is we all just worked really, really hard and we paid a lot of people a lot of money and bonuses and everything we could do to stay open because we felt like staying open is the key. So in mm -hmm. 21, the expectation was, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I, it was like, can you just serve us? Because there's so many places around the country that it was um, and in our markets, it was hard to just get into a, a place. But now that we're all, you know, kind of back to normal, I think the priorities is this the experience. I think when you come in to a ribbon shop and this is, you know, very similar, I think for casual and fine dining restaurants, it's part of the experience is obviously it's service and you want great food, but you know, what is the music like? And uh, if you're there to watch a game, do they have the game you want and is on the, the good TV or what, you know, and, and will they, you know, take care of those things that, that you want to see. If you have children, like one of the things when um, children come in, uh, we have an, we automatically bring a child an apple with some yogurt if they come in, whether they ask for it or not, because we know that when you bring, have a meal with a child, the child can want the food right away and they don't want to go through all the, the, the pomp and circumstances. Here are our right. cocktails, here are specials. The kid just wants to eat. So I know parents <laughs> yeah. really like that. Um, mm. So again, approachable is what we, we say we are. But I think from an expectation, it's about the overall experience outside of food and service, which is obviously the table stakes. But it's, mm -hmm. a, I really think the, the level of music, the decor, um, you know, the feelings of the, for, for someone who wants to watch the ball game, can you, you know, bifurcate that area of the restaurant to someone who wants to have a nice meal and a bottle of wine, doesn't care who's playing. And, and again, that goes to design and, and, um, and music and all those different things that I think we do a really nice job with. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of the work that you guys have been doing since you came into the group is to really systemize this and to streamline and to make sure to your uh, word you use consistency was key. And obviously to have multiple units, multiple units and to scale, all of those things are key. But you guys are also now going to franchise this concept. Uh, I, I'm curious, first off, is this what you were brought in to do? Because as I understand, you have a franchise background. Were you brought in to set this thing up for franchise growth? And then, you know, second part of the question is, what did that look like? How have you gone about setting this brand up to prepare it for franchising? Well, I think it was more, I was brought in to help um, steer the ship through the COVID times and then get us through and how do we get to growth? Because mm -hmm. the company has grown in the past and then taking some steps back for a variety of reasons. Um, it's founder owned and founder run and, and that creates its own unique um, uh, issues and not always negative, but sometimes can be because there is this status quo and all these sacred cows and, and all the things that go along with that when you're founder owned. Um, but my job was how do we get to growth? And my first thing with a franchise background is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, by default, you can't grow if we're not consistent. If every location is run by whoever the GM is and how they think it should be run, I don't know. I just don't know how you grow that. If, you know, Bobby runs it one way and Sally runs it one way. I, I'm In my world, in my mind, I don't think that's possible. And maybe you can get to four, five, six, even 10 or 12 restaurants. You can't get to 25 or 50 by doing that. So streamlining and getting the processes in place to me was the first step. And the the idea behind franchising, although it was in the back of uh in back in the back of the mind of ownership when they hired me, it was more, you know, we want to grow the business. I, I personally believe and I think we all believe here, this has the potential to be a fifty hundred unit regional brand. I mm -hmm. don't know if it's a national brand, um, but I think it's it has potential to be a, a really nice regional brand. And part of that was you know, if we franchise, it's a little um, capital light, right? And the the opportunity for someone to come in and be a single unit operator is very compelling and, and mm. can make a really healthy return. Um, but to be frank, I don't know this concept where we are today is going to be great for someone who says, I want to do a 10 unit area development agreement and and build, build you know, build four or five a year. I don't know that we're set up for that yet. Just also mm -hmm. the markets we're going to target over the next three years, which are smaller markets, 50 to 100,000 people, 
Um, you know, Denver maybe, maybe, but mm-hmm. I, I, we, we're not going to Dallas. You know, we're not going to Chicago. We're not we're not going to larger markets because we know what works. And um, these smaller towns kind of going as the big fish in the small town. And the day we open, we're one of, if not the best restaurant town. There's a lot of equity with that. And uh, and I really believe single unit operators who become franchisees in this business, um, in this brand, will, will, will do really well. I really appreciate that. I mean, I come from a small town myself. And I mean, I think to this day, Chipotle is one of the nicest restaurants in town. And, you know, there are hundreds of communities across the country where they just don't have a, uh, that great restaurant concept that people can go to for date night or, or whatever it might be. They've got to drive uh, pretty far away. But, you know, with the franchising strategy, to your point, you hear about somebody say, I'm going to go to Denver and I'm going to drop 20 or 30 locations into the Denver market, do that in Dallas, you know, do that in, you know, wherever. And so this is all kind of um, a little bit unique. Uh, tell me about, you, you, you know, talking about that sort of single unit operator, how does that really benefit this concept and this franchising strategy? What are the advantages to this, put the one in the, you know, smaller market with one single unit operator and kind of repeat that in, in multiple small markets across the country? So um, we're going to be focusing on the Midwest and the Mountain West um, to do that. So we're going to try to stay somewhat geographically uh, coherent, you know, because I know that I've been a part of other brands. I've seen other brands that, you know, say we're going to stay in a local market and then someone waves a check to them 2000 miles away and they go, "Okay, we'll sell you that market and they can't service it and they can't um, do all the things right and they lose standards. So we don't want to do that. Um, but the idea of the single unit operator in some of these smaller uh, in some of these smaller towns, I feel like you'll have better control. And if we have great processes and great standards and systems in place, then to me, then we just need someone who wants to go in and own that restaurant and be the owner in the face of the of the that location in that market. Um, one of the things we always talk about is being the community's restaurant, and um, we really do a nice job of that. Everything from We'll have coaches shows at almost uh, for every uh, college that we're near um, when we when we go into a town. Um, you know, those are the type of things that you can do in these small towns and really, like I said, make a big splash and and uh, just really give back to those communities. And you get a lot of brand equity when you do that. So mm-hmm. as we rolled out our franchising program, as suspected, Uh, We're having people in these smaller towns say, we want one here. We want one here. How do I sign up? So we're already getting a really nice pipeline of people who are interested. Um, Not all necessarily qualified, either financially or operationally, um, but we're getting there. And and it's literally only been live for three weeks. So I think think we're going to have some nice traction there. Um, and uh, we have two licensees currently, and they're part of that model. I mean, they're they both individually own one location and do really well, and and are very happy with it. Um, and I don't know necessarily if they would do great if they opened a second location. I think mm-hmm. that that's may, maybe not their skill set, and that's okay. Um, and you know, on some level, and you but you could talk to a lot of restaurant franchisees who have eight, nine, ten. Some days I bet they wish they just had one they could run and they would do great, <laughs> yeah. you know, because there's a lot less stress and they can and they can cash flow really well um, on the one without all the overhead and things. So I think at the beginning, this this really does make sense. Now, if we evolve and we get to 25, 30 restaurants and we can um, have a, an economic model that can have someone be able to make money above the store level at a rate that makes sense and they can own three or four. That may make sense. But on the short term, I think this is the, the right approach for us. And owning that's okay, too, because you hear all these brands that always want multi-unit experience, develop, development agreements, and all those things. I just don't know that's for us um, right now. And I, I'm, not, I'm not apologetic Excuse me, apologetic about it either. I think it's totally fine. Everyone should have a space to be in. Um, mm-hmm. And for where we are right now at this level, I, I think it's fine. And you know, AUVs of $4 million, people can do really well. Sure. Well, yeah. And speaking of economic model, tell me a little bit about the, the, the economic model for going into a small community, because, you know, it, certainly not to um, downplay the potential of a community, but uh, I, I take it that th- these communities are probably a little bit lower income than, you know, a bigger market, of course. Um, and depending on the community, you know, maybe they don't have a lot of forward trajectory, you could say. Um, is it enough that you're going to get you're going to trade, you know, you're going to get a better deal on rent, you're going to get lower costs 
across the board in this community to make up for, you know, the fact that maybe you don't hit the kind of sales figures that you would in a bigger community? Is it is it just a wash? Tell me a little bit about the economic model and how it can make sense to go into a community like that. Yeah, well, I think the best example is we're going to be opening up. We signed a lease. Um, we start construction in a few weeks for Great Falls, Montana, small town, um, but a ton of growth. They're redeveloping downtown, um, only has about 50,000 people, but it also has a uh, military base um, there. And they're doing a bunch of um, investments in in their uh, at the military base. That that one in particular deals with ballistic missiles, one of three places in the country that has ballistic nuclear missiles, and they're updating everything. So it's like a billion-dollar project over the next five, 10 years. So that area is just going to be booming. Um, but, when you know, booming for Great Falls is going to maybe 50,000 to 75,000 people. Um, but we have very little competition. Um, everyone knows about us. When we signed our uh, lease, we were um, made the local news. Um, we were in the paper. Um, they asked uh, myself to come speak at their business development conference there because they were so excited about a ribbon chop house. You just let everyone will know we're open within a month of us opening. And if I went to a uh, market outside of Dallas or outside of Chicago, I may get a blurb on the fourth page of the paper that we're there. And right. we're taught, you know, we're behind, you know, we're in some shopping center where there are seven other fast ca- or, or uh, casual dining restaurants, plus a couple of fast casual and, and yeah. some QSR. And it will take four years for anyone to kind of know who we are. and We have to do what we're doing. So it really, it offsets the idea there's a bigger population by the fact that there's less competition. Um, mm-hmm. And we're, like I said, the big fish in the small pa- pond. Um, the real chat and, and as well, to your point, the real estate is much it's much more effective, I mean, and efficient from some of the costs of these larger towns where the cost of real estate is is just co- – it, it, it's to the point it makes no sense to open locations sure. um, of this size. Um, but I'll also say that the, the, other, the other part of this equation is they're harder to run from an above store level because you have locations that are, you know, three hours apart from each other. So if you have 10 locations in the Denver market, you may only meet two people who are traveling, you know, maybe, uh, you know, traveling, they can visit five locations in one day, right? Yeah. And it's totally different. So we have a different above store model and that costs a little bit more to operate. So there is some offset. It's not all perfect, but it's a, it's a good trade-off for us. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Pivoting just a little bit, I really want to talk about your loyalty program because this is a unique loyalty program. Uh, this is, as I understand it, $50 a month, $600 a year, and the customer gets 10% discount off every meal. Is that correct? They do. They get 10% off every meal. They get um, top of the wait list if they come in without a reservation. So they kind okay. of can feel special. And they also get $50 a month of gift cards. So really... Oh. At the end of the day, it's a gift card program. And yeah, sure. uh, yeah they're committing to eat with us every month because if you get it, you're going to use it, right? Um, and it's just being gangbusters. And we actually, we think we're going to end our loyal, our regular loyalty program um, and focus just on the royalty program. So we have a traditional loyalty program where you spend $10, you get a point. After you get 100 points, you get you know uh, a percentage off or a free meal or whatever it may be. Um, but I think we're going to exit that all together. And then the royalty program may have different levels um, because the, the the reason we even have to cap it, because we capped it right now, we have a, we, we've sold a thousand, about a hundred per location. Um, uh, the licensees have not been a part of it yet, to be clear, just because we wanted to work through it before we did anything. As a former franchisee, I thought <laughs> everyone would appreciate us working through a new idea before we we're just roll it out. I've seen it bone both ways. It's always nicer to have, the franchisor take uh, take some of those um, lumps, but uh, right. but the the key is right now we have people on waiting list, and the reason we're not just selling it to them is if they come in and want to you know a table, we put them at the top of the wait list. We can only do that for so many people. So our next right. level of the royalty program will be you know the, this will be like a founders club, and then below that. Um, it will, we haven't thought of the name yet. I'm not smart enough. We have people who are, we'll come up with another name for it. And, um, and we'll sell them this exact same thing without the wait list. And Mm -hmm. the feedback from our, um, royalty members is they really like the wait list. 
Um, but I think for new people, we could sell it in a way. And again, what we're trying to do, it's, it's really, it's com- having people commit to eat with us every month because they're getting the gift cards. And mm-hmm. uh, even though they get 10% off, they're spending almost 20% more, oh. which is fascinating. <laughs> I was going to yeah, ask you about so, that. Like, um, how, how does it work out for you guys in the end? Because to me, all of this sounds like this ends up being a cost to you, but you're actually encouraging to eat more and them to eat more and order more than they otherwise would. They do because they they uh, they order more appetizers, they order more alcohol. Uh, they're um, our biggest fans. I mean, some of the like I'll give you an example. Uh, fifty fifty percent of our I'm looking at my numbers at here. Fifty uh, percent of our royalty members come one to two times a month, um, but 15% of them come five to six times a month. So with an average PPA of $75, the $50 is gone quickly, um, the gift card. And they come in because they get 10% off. They come in because they feel special. And it's like a little bit like being part of a club, um, right. like you know, special, like a, like the way people feel good about being, you know, elite level for uh airlines or something like that. So sure. we're kind of basing it on, on that. I think the traditional loyalty programs are just, they're commodities at this point. Everyone expects yeah. it. I mean, there's a loyalty program for absolutely everything that people are just don't even care anymore. They don't want to give their number out. They don't want to get the text messages. They don't want to do that. Right. This is kind of special. And they also get a beautiful set of steak knives when they sign up. We're also sending out Christmas gifts. Um, we're gonna. Uh, we just uh, finished it last week. We have a cookbook, a Ribbon Chop House cookbook. We're gonna send every member as a thank you and Merry Christmas. So, and then next year we're gonna try to evolve it to wine tastings and special tastings and and things of that nature. So we're gonna really try to make it sticky and mm-hmm. something that they can brag to their friends about and get more people because um, I do think there's some there's something here that's that's special that we need to um we need to dig into and figure out a little more so this was kind of this year was really one large test and then next year we're going to take it to the next level but again i think being in smaller towns you do this i think in a larger town i can't i i don't see us having as much success in a larger town with a program like this Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, to your point, the loyalty program has evolved to this place where anymore it's about exclusivity and it's about experience, right? I mean, it's not about the punch card, 10th sandwich free. It's about feeling like I'm a part of the family of this company. That's why you see these NFT restaurants popping up, right? I mean, at the the core, what they're offering is is exclusivity and the feeling like you're a part of something special. You're a part of a club, a part of a family. So, that's what you guys are obviously creating. So, I mean, what what is your gut feeling on how franchisees will feel about this? Because ultimately, it, it, on surface, it seems like there's a cost to them to be able to run a loyalty program like this. But you guys are clearly being able to prove to them that this is going to be advantageous in the long run, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Um... It's no different than when people sell gift cards for $100 and you get a bounce back of $20, right? Right. Um, I mean, for us, we're giving a bounce back basically of 10% um, of 10%. That's all really giving them. It, and mm-hmm. and they're going to – and they absolutely spend more. So I would tell franchisees this is a huge win for them. But again, coming from that world, we won't force anyone to do – I mean, what the only thing we're going to force people to do is hold standards on these type of programs, if for some reason someone doesn't want to do it, we just will let them see the numbers eventually that I feel like they'll come to us and go, how can we get started? I, I mean, everyone we've spoken to is just, you know, thinks this is a really neat idea. And so far, like I said, it's it's been a big win for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think if we can get it to the next level, this has huge potential for us. This is really the future of, of loyalty. Um, people getting the exclusivity, and the residual income every month, right? Why do people push right. gift cards at the end of the year so hard? Because they want that January sales. And what, what we're doing is we're just smoothing the line to basically do it all throughout the year. Now, it'll be interesting to see how many gift cards we sell this year uh, for, yeah. for Christmas time, right? It'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see if this has changed anything. We, you know, I don't, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll find out. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is um, in ideation is also a corporate membership because a lot of people have who are who own businesses near us um want something to give to their um salespeople to take people out or for their staff or something like that so mm. we're thinking about 
how to be creative and maybe some kind of exclusive corporate membership for just our, our really heavy users. And that may only be like 10 per location. And, mm. and I don't know if there's a big upside financially. That's more just, again, brand equity and, and the stickiness and having them bring their group of 15 people to us as opposed to our competitor. That's the black card, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Something to that effect. Platinum, yeah. Uh, So I'm curious, I do want to talk about sort of our our economic conditions that we're in, because, um, of course, as as we speak, we are at the tail end of Q3 earnings season. We've gotten a glimpse at what the major restaurant companies are reporting. um, And we, of course, are um, really mired in inflation still. And everybody's talking about recession. Why this, of course, is relevant for you is in these economic conditions, uh, people tend to trade down. So they tend to trade down from casual dining to fast casual, fast casual to QSR. You start to see a lot more value deals pop up. We're already seeing that in all the all the companies that have been reporting. Chipotle talked about that they're losing customers to McDonald's. So we already see trade down happening. Uh, you know, we already see a lot of the companies doing deals and bundling and discounts and recession will only really um, will make that even more important for a lot of these companies. I'm curious for a company such as Ribbon Chop House that, you know, places such a premium on quality of food, the experience being this nice night out. Uh, how do you protect against that? How, how can you set this brand up to get through inflation, potential recession? How can you guys really survive the economic conditions as they are? Yeah. So um, when we think about people trading down in our markets, it's more trading down within our menu. And that's what we're mm. seeing. Right. Interesting. So we're seeing people come in and instead of uh, ordering the $44 ribeye, they're ordering the $26 filet. Or store ordering the $26 filet, they're ordering the $16 burger. Um, and we have a menu where people can come in and kind of trade down with within within that. But we, okay. where we're losing are the people that they would always come in for um for the burger or the wings or or something like that. Those are the people that we're losing um from a transaction count. And mm-hmm. to get to make sure we don't lose that that guest count, um, we have to do a really nice job of execution. Um, to me, I've come from an operator background. I just think execution is the key because when it, what I saw at least in 08 and 09, the last time we're the Great Recession, and I personally believe we're in recession right now, whether it's official mm-hmm. or not, it doesn't matter. You can see it, mm-hmm. um, is execution because people, although they appreciate a value deal at this level of casual dining and even quick casual, in my experience, to some extent. Um, they just really want a good experience. They want to feel like the value can come not only from the dollar, it can come from feeling like they, they were treated well because each dollar counts more to them than it used to, right? Mm-hmm. It just, it's like, I spent $40 on X or Y. You probably hear yourself saying that sometimes to your friends, or you may say, I paid $40, but it was amazing food or great experience or high quality shirt or whatever the purchase may be. So I think mm-hmm. we really have uh, on our P's and Q's with operations and execution. Um, that's the way we fight this. We won't do bundles. Uh, I mean, we've done in the past before I got here, um, I'll just say some specials that that don't make sense for our brand and who we are. I don't want to go back to that. I think we're mm-hmm. executing a high level at a couple really, really nice years based on not discounting, but on just executing a high level and giving great quality. Um, and then we're adding new menu items and quarterly we're doing that. And we've engaged some outside R&D people to help us. All of those are all the things that will really engage our guests to be able to, you know, uh, withstand um, the recession that I think we're going to be going through for the next year. And hopefully mm-hmm. we, we stand strong at the end. I also think we have a we have a really nice um, real estate from the standpoint of where we are real estate is percentage of sales and and our real estate costs. And I think we'll we be able to withstand that and, and, and hold the line on our cost. And, and we don't want to take any more price. We've taken price a couple of times and we really don't want to take any more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the other side is commodities will start coming down and that will actually allow us to maybe even lower some prices, which we'd like to do on some of our stakes and, and, uh, and do what we can from that standpoint. Going back to also, you know, some of the streamlining you talk, you know, talk about some of the streamlining you guys have been doing. Uh, Also, what we've seen in the reports from the major companies recently is a a lot more of that. It's a lot more of trying to automate, invest in technology. 
Outback Steakhouse, uh, sure a competitor of yours. I mean, they uh, reported that they're going to be investing in both front of house and back of house technology to try to streamline things because if you can save on cost of the operation, you know, then you can um, improve your uh, profit margin even as we go through a recession. Beyond the you know cutting the stakes and preparation that you guys are doing, uh, that you have shifted to, anything else operationally speaking that you can look at as far as streamlining the business? Are you looking at technology? Can you do some of these things um, to maybe further get you through the recession without having to, um, you know, have having costs get out of control? I guess. So I think in our and and Sam, I can't wait till you get a chance to come to a ribbon shop. But um, I think for our brand, technology needs to be used, um, but not seen by our guests. We're, mm-hmm. we're, if we go to the model where you order at the table, like um, Darden's done with Olive Garden and um, and other brands I've seen that are doing that, which is great for their brands, and I, and I, it's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, like at our TJ Ribs brand, which is a little, uh, um, it's a different guest. Uh, we've been talking about potentially doing that, but for Ribbon Chop House, it doesn't make sense um, for us to to do anything like that. Where the technology is going to come in for us is um, how do we streamline um, uh, products that come in using what I call speed scratch um, prep, as opposed to pure prep, where you 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 know start from scratch on everything. So speed scratch is where you do. Um, you have some things maybe made for us to our spec, and then you mix two and three ingredients, and and then have someone you know put the uh, the uh, recipe together and things like that. So technology from a back of the house standpoint, new equipment, all those things are in play. Um, front of the house, the only thing really at this point from a technology standpoint we're looking it into, and we've been doing but doing a better job is tying to our reservation system and mm-hmm. having. Um, a system that uh, keeps up with each table on where they are in their meal to try to um, update our reservation system so people know how long the wait is. And if they feel like there's, you know, 30 minute wait, they'll come in and get on a list. If it's more than that, they'll just go to the next place, right? So table turns and all that. But the guest experience, in in my view and our team's view and every really everyone's view here is it still is a, a relationship and they want to talk to the server. They want to know what the specials are and and all of those things. I mean, we've even talked about using the order, the handheld ordering for the servers to use, mm-hmm. um, uh, which a lot of people are doing now. We're not quite sold that that won't mess up the, um, the guest experience. We like our servers to talk to our guests. And and again, small towns, a lot of them know each other. You know, right. they they once they're in three or four times, everyone kind of knows each other and they, they're talking and having conversations about what's going on in the community. And we don't want a guest experience where someone just sitting there typing on a on a um, on a on a tablet, just you know, just being order takers. We really want right. um, more of an experience for our guests. Makes sense. All right, your own last question for you: uh, Five years from now, what do you hope to have accomplished with this brand? Um, I'd like to see this brand, you know, twenty-five to. 30 units um, with several really profitable franchisees and uh, and a waiting list for more franchisees, which would be excellent. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's totally realistic. You know, everyone could say we want to be at 100 units, but, you know, you got to walk before you run. And I mm-hmm. think in the next five years, we could absolutely see that. And I'd also like to see our AUVs north of 5 million. Um, we're doing a lot on that side as well. And, and we have to continue pushing AUVs higher. Um, but I, I really believe that this brand has... Uh, has legs and the food is just phenomenal. The people are phenomenal. And uh, if you haven't been to a ribbon shop, try to get out there and, and go to one if you get a chance. Excellent. Well, I will be doing that. I got to get myself to Montana and uh, check out a ribbon shop house. But uh, your own, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. For sure. Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much for having me on and, uh, and have a great uh, rest of the year and happy uh, Thanksgiving. It's a little early, but happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. That was my interview with Rib and Chop House CEO, Yaron Goldman. So what should you learn from this interview? Here are my six takeaways. 
My first takeaway is that you can streamline prep and production without sacrificing quality. A few years ago, Rib and Chop House was still hand-cutting steaks, but when Yaron came in as CEO, he noticed an opportunity to really make that process more consistent. So they went back to their suppliers and they asked their suppliers to cut the steaks to spec which they did. And now Ribbon Chop House has much more consistently cut steaks. And what's interesting, the, the byproduct of this is they're able to same, save on their um, cost, same, save on their prep. But the customer actually likes this more. They're not concerned about this sacrificing quality. They're not concerned that um, the suppliers cutting the steaks is, is going to ruin quality in any, any way because it's the same quality meat it's not frozen. It's still fresh. But also, as Yaron was talking about before, when the, the staff was hand-cutting steaks, the guests could sometimes get a 12-ounce steak. They could sometimes get an 8-ounce steak. It was kind of all over the place. It wasn't consistent. So now that they have this consistency, he said, guests are actually happier. It did not sacrifice quality in any way. It just made it all more, more consistent. And so that has actually really driven a more positive customer response. My second takeaway related to that is you cannot grow if you are not consistent. Your own is preparing this brand for to scale. They have just launched a franchise program. He thinks they can get to 25, 30 locations in the next couple of years. Eventually, they could get to 50 to 100 locations as a regional concept. But if he didn't focus on this consistency, they might not be able to accomplish that. If you have a, a GM or an owner-operator in each individual location just kind of doing their own thing, the operation would be all over the map, and you wouldn't be able to invest in the guest uh, perception. The guests wouldn't be able to come into a ribbon chop house and know exactly what they're going to get because it wouldn't be consistent. You have to streamline and you have to systematize your restaurant concept in order to start scaling it. My third takeaway is that it pays to be a big fish in a small pond. Ribbon Chop House is based in Bozeman, Montana, which itself is a smaller market, but it's investing in similarly sized markets across the Mountain West with about 50,000 to 200,000 people. That's a little bit counter to what some other concepts like to do. Of course, a lot of companies, especially those of you who are fast casuals, you look at these big markets where you can drop in you know, 10, 15, 20 locations. You can get into a downtown uh, core where you can capture that lunch crowd, um, that you know business district. This is not Ribbon Chop House's strategy. They want those smaller markets because according to your own, you can be that big fish. You can be the community restaurant. You have fewer competitors. It's a lot easier to get the attention of the community. And ultimately, it's cheaper. You have cheaper real estate costs, cheaper operational costs. All of this makes these smaller markets be hugely appealing. And of course, remember, there are hundreds of communities like this all across the country. This is a theme I've had on this show pretty often. I, I come from a small town where there aren't many chains that are investing in it because of its size. But ultimately, the Chipotle in my hometown is killing it because people do ultimately in those towns crave a better restaurant, a better experience. And so if that's your strategy, if that's what you think your restaurant wants to be, there are a lot of towns and smaller markets out there who are ready for your brand. My fourth takeaway is that if you treat your loyalty members like royalty, they will pay you back. I'm really fascinated by Ribbon Chop House's loyalty program, which has a lot of components, so bear with me. But from what I can tell from what own said, they offer a 10% discount. They give you $50 gift cards every month. They give you a set of steak knives when you sign up. They're going to give you a cookbook for Christmas. They move you to the top of the wait list when you arrive, all in return for $600 a year or 50 bucks a month. This is essentially a gift card program, but Ribbon Chop House is really going all in on these royalty members, uh, and for good reason. These guests are visiting more frequently. Yaron said that even though they have a 10% discount, they tend to have a 20% higher ticket because they spring for that appetizer or that nice bottle of wine. At the end of the day, customers want exclusivity out of their loyalty program. They want to feel like they're part of an elite club. And that's exactly what Ribbon Chop House is providing. So even there, though there is this cost up front for Ribbon Chop House to essentially pay these loyalty members to come, 
uh, it it pays off. And now, as Yaron was saying, he thinks these guests, especially in these smaller towns, will go tell their friends. It will become a uh, an exclusive opportunity for folks in these smaller communities to feel like they're part of that club. My fifth takeaway is that customers find value in how they feel in your restaurant, not just in how much they pay. I, of course, wanted to talk to Yaron about the recession and how we're already starting to see restaurants talk about trading down. We already heard Chipotle say that their guests were trading down to McDonald's and that they were receiving guests from casual dining. And I wanted to know what that meant for a company like Rib and Chop House. Well, Yaron says, yes, they see some trade down. Mostly they see that in their own menu where guests trade down to maybe cheaper items on their menu. But he made the point that he's not too worried about trading down out of the concept altogether because he thinks if you execute at a high level, if you provide a really high quality experience, then your customers will find value in that. And, and that they're looking for that great service Great food, of course, but all around a great experience. And if you give them that, they will they will come along with that price point even in a recession. My sixth and final takeaway is that in full service, the back of the house is where we should expect to see most tech innovation. Yaron doesn't think he's going to invest in technology at the table side. He's not sure that it makes sense to streamline the labor in the front of the house by inviting in all of these new tech tools like kiosks and things like that. He thinks ribbon chop house guests still want that personal human interaction. It's not going to stop him, though, from looking at tech innovation in the back of the house to see how they can use technology to streamline their operations. That's a theme that we're seeing from some other restaurant companies. I, I brought it up in the conversation, but Outback just announced that they are similarly going to look at back of house technology to streamline operations to save on costs that the technolo- technology revolution that's happening right now, that has big implications in back of house. But from for full service restaurants, the front of the house, your hospitality is, is part of the deal. It's part of your differentiators. You might not want to rush to investing in kiosks and self-service like some fast casuals especially are doing right now. Those are all my takeaways for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Takeaway wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave your feedback. You can also email me at sam.ocus at informa.com. Thanks again and talk to you next week.